Well, I'm glad to see many of you here this morning. Bitterness is not a topic. It's not a cool topic. People don't typically think, hey, let's, hey, what are you like talking about? Oh, let's talk about bitterness today. I don't know. <laughs> that usually doesn't happen. Uh, my experience is most people aren't aware of or want to acknowledge their bitterness. Even non-Christians understand that bitterness is not a cool thing. It's not something that people want to be identified with, whatever your faith expression is. I don't know anyone of any particular faith or even atheist that wants to be identified as bitter. They would typically identify themselves as having been offended by people and then they're reacting, they're treating them or, or, or I'm a certain way, I don't trust people anymore. I don't, but they usually don't say, hey, I'm bitter and I'm good with it. It's rare that you'll hear that. And if you do, they had too much lean. People do not want to identify with bitterness, but it is of grave concern to God. This idea where we started two weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 12 did not originate. Bitterness doesn't originate with that concern from God. It doesn't start there where God is saying, you know, don't let a root of bitterness spring up. It, the concern for bitterness goes way back. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, this is a whole section where God is warning the Israelites, but he says this to them in Deuteronomy 29, 18. He says, be sure there is no man, woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So this, this reality of bitterness in people is, is something of great concern to God, and he is warning, making sure that people who believe in him aren't bitter. In Hebrews chapter 3, we, we started our series in Hebrews 12, but in Hebrews chapter 3, the word bitterness isn't used, but some of the consequences of bitterness are described as God says this in Hebrews 3, warning his people again. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So you see, there's this encouragement that there's an evil and unbelieving heart. And remember, he's talking to people who know him, who profess to believe in him, hence the word Brothers and sisters, these are people like us in this room who profess to believe in Jesus. But God is saying it is possible for us to have an evil and unbelieving heart. And we need to make sure that that does not happen. So the question is, well, what would make a Christian who is aware of their sinfulness, accepts the free forgiveness of Jesus Christ? What would make that person later have an evil and unbelieving heart? towards the God that we just sang about. 
What makes a believer go from singing these songs and participating in a church and coming up and sharing their testimony and maybe getting baptized in front of other people and even sharing the gospel with someone else to eventually get to a point where they no longer believe? This warning is not because it doesn't happen. It's because it does happen. And the concern from God is make sure it doesn't happen to you. What makes a Christian have an evil and unbelieving heart? What made the Israelites in the Old Testament, after God saved them and brought them out of Egypt, they saw the supernatural work of God. They saw God speaking to Moses on a mountain. They built a temple. They did all these things. They they saw God feed them with bread from heaven and quail meat. They saw Moses strike the rock and water come out of it. What would make those Israelites want to follow gods of other nations? when they've seen what their God has already done. Bitterness is a dangerous, hidden reality because none of us want to admit we're bitter. We're bitter people at times or we're bitter towards certain Well, today, we're going to talk about being bitter at God himself. What does that look like? What happens in us when we are bitter towards God? I've said this and I stand by this, that bitterness often, most commonly, is the result of unmet expectations. Got this from James 4, essentially. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it your passions or your desires are at war? It's your expectations, things that you want. Expectations are simply things that I want to happen and things that I wasn't expecting to happen that I don't want to happen. Some of us want a new job or a better relationship. Or a child. These are things that we want to happen. Then there's things that we don't think about that we don't want to happen. Like no one's expecting to drive out of here and get into a car accident. You're not expecting to fall down and hurt your back and you're out of work. No one's expecting to get sick. You're wearing masks for a reason. Whether they work or not is beyond me. But you're wearing them for a reason. We wear them for a reason. No one's expecting to get COVID. Our expectations are things we're aware of and things we're not aware of until we realize they're not going to happen. Bitterness towards God. Open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Some of y'all are like, oh, okay, all right, here you go, Old Testament with it. <laughs> The Lord said it was time to hit the old 
Testament. Since you preach too much from the new, let's take it back. Who am I to argue with God? Well, they said, my arms are too short to box with them. Ruth chapter one. It's after Judges, before Samuel in case. For those of you who haven't turned to Ruth in quite some time. If you got a Bible app, it's easy. But if you got that paper, some of you might be like, wait a minute, I know it's. Listen, no one's going to judge you if you turn to the front and look at the. No one's going to judge you, right? No one's judging you. Book of Ruth, chapter one. Reading from the CSB translation, and I quote. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his son, two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives, and one was named Orpah, which all of us, that looks like Oprah, doesn't it? Yeah. I said Oprah a couple times. I practiced it. Don't say Oprah. Don't say Oprah. Her name was Orpah. The second was named Ruth, and they lived in Moab about 10 years. Both Malam and Kilion also died. And the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing them food. So remember, this is a famine. There's no food. They leave. They hear that food is back, and so they return. Verse 7, she left the place where she had been living, living accompanied by her two daughter-in-laws, two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you, go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to, to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord has turned his hand against me. Again, they wept loudly. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there, will be, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. 
When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. We're not going to finish the rest of the story. Obviously, it's four chapters long. Let me give some background real quick so that you can understand what's happening in Ruth. Just a quick background. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it seems crazy until you understand what's the actual setting What's happening? What's the background that I need to know so I can understand the context? So the beginning of chapter one, it says during the time of the judges, judges is the book right before the book of Ruth. Now, what this is indicating is that this is a time after Joshua has died. Joshua, son of Nun, was the the military leader, the spiritual leader in many ways for the Jews after Moses passed away. The whole book of Joshua highlights his conquest for God on behalf of God for the Israelites. And at the end of that book, after Joshua reestablishes a covenant with Israel that we will obey God and this 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 tree will be a memorial. Of our covenant that we're making to follow the Lord and all the people agree. And then shortly after Joshua dies, the book of Judges is a book that highlights primarily six judges within that book. And then some other just really evil things that happen towards the end. But but Judges is a book where you see the turn from God. It's a book that highlights Israel's turning away from the Lord. As each of these judges, the story gets worse and worse and worse and worse. The last three judges... We're familiar with them. Gideon, he trusts God to help him in battle with just 300 men. But then Gideon murders a bunch of Israelites for not fighting with him. Didn't God say these are the only people you need? He takes the gold, turns it into an idol, and the people... After he dies, start to worship that idol. Then you have Jephthah, who is. He is seemingly so unfamiliar with the character of God that he relates to God almost like God is a Canaanite God. You see, Canaanite gods, they they wanted human sacrifices. They would give their children and 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 people. But God of the Bible doesn't do that. But he relates to God like a Canaanite God. And this is the judge of Israel, so much so that he makes a vow to God that if you give me victory in this battle, whoever comes out of my house to greet me, I will sacrifice them. And it turns out to be his daughter. Now, think for a second. You could say, well, he didn't know his daughter was going to come out, but he said, whoever comes out to greet me, whoever that was, was going to be somebody that was with him. 
Somebody was, what would make you think that the God of Israel wants you to, but you made a vow and you keep it. Then after that was Samson. Samson had no regard for Yahweh. We know his narrative. Marries a Philistine woman, Delilah. Eventually tells her his secret to his strength. Gets apprehended, his eyes gouged out. And at the very end of his life, after being made to make entertainment for the Philistines, he gets some strength back, pushes a pillar and kills himself and plenty of Philistines. Judges ends, the final verse of Judges ends with these words, 2125. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Ruth 1, during the time of the judges. So this narrative of Naomi happens somewhere in the landscape of those six judges in the time frame where it doesn't say exactly when, but during the time where these judges ruled, where people did whatever seemed right to them, our scene today takes place. So with that backdrop, let's look at a couple of things that happened here. It says, during the time of Judges, there was a famine in the land, a man in Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons. They left. Elimelech. They go to Moab because there's a famine. So they travel to a country known for its hatred of Jewish people. Now, it doesn't say that them leaving was wrong or that somehow it wasn't a trust of God. But when you see everyone did what seemed right to him. At the end of Judges, it begins with Elimelech taking his wife and children to Moab, a place where they are hated. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 23, three through six, God warns them before they go into the promised land officially. God says this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, may ever enter the Lord's assembly. This is because they did not meet you with food and water on the journey after you came out of Egypt. And because Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor, from Aram Naharim, was hired to curse you. Yet the Lord, your God, would not listen to Balaam. But he turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord, your God, loves you. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity as long as you live. So the scene starts off with, uh, should he have even gone to Moab? (laughs) Verse three, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies and her sons marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Now Deuteronomy seven, one through four tells us this, God again instructing the Israelites. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hethites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, when you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. You must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. 
because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Now, the Moabites weren't explicitly listed in the seven, these seven nations, but we already know from Deuteronomy 23 that God has no love for the Moabites. And here, her sons take two of them to be their wives. Ten years later, her sons die. We see that in verse 4. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 3. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she, went, she was left with her two sons, and her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One, when they, one was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they had lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. It's possible that Naomi could have thought, you know, we actually weren't really doing what the Lord said do. Possible. Bible doesn't say that. What it does indicate she was left with just these two daughter-in-laws who are not Jews. It's not until we get to verse 13 that we see how Naomi is processing the deaths of her husband and sons. In verse 13, we get a clue. And then in verse 20 and 21, we get a clue. We get the reality. Here's verse 13. Talking to her daughters. Would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. In verse 20 and 21, here's another snapshot of her perspective. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? We are going to highlight each of these two scenes, her with her daughters and then her returning back to Bethlehem and make some observations about bitterness towards God. The hope is that none of us are in or get to this place. But it can happen. And it has happened. Two people in this room. First scene, Ruth with her daughter-in-laws. She pleads with them to leave. You're not going to thank you for being with me. I appreciate you. I love you. Thank you. You're a wonderful daughter-in-laws, but I can't do anything else for you. I can't even have more children. And if I did, there's no way you're going to wait until they're of age to marry. So go. And then she says in 13, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. The emphasis here for her and the, the way she uses bitter is more on the circumstances of loss. Remember we talked about last week, bitter can also be like an adjective that modifies it now. So these are bitter circumstances, which simply means it's very harsh and very difficult, very challenging. 
circumstances. The description here is not necessarily an attitude towards God, but evaluating the harshness and angst of the circumstances themselves, which he communicate are caused by God. She doesn't want them to share in the pain of loss, to participate in the constant reminder. You see, if they stay with Naomi, then they're reminded that their husbands are dead. But if they move on, maybe remarry, life goes on. She wants their life to go on because she recognizes my circumstances are bitter. And God is the cause. But it's important to look at the language that she uses. It's not just God is the cause. We talked about this previously. Bitterness judges both the actions and the motives. Listen to her language. Because the Lord's hand has turned against me. How do you know that their deaths are the result of his hand turning against you? How do you come to that conclusion? Now, we get no indication that she was given a word from an angel or a vision from the Lord to say, my hand is against you. But her conclusion is that the Lord's hand has turned against me. He no longer has a favorable view of me. So it's not just the Lord took my son, my sons and my husband, but he did it because he's against me. See, the problem with bitterness towards God is it will judge the motive of God because God doesn't explain himself to us. You see, bitterness towards God is often and almost always circumstantial. He allowed this to happen. But that's not enough. Well, why did he allow it to happen? Because his hand is turned against me. He is against me now. When we make statements like that, when you make statements like that, you're basically saying there's no other reason that God is doing this except he's against me now. There can be no other reason except he's against me. And this is where bitterness begins to grow and start to spring up. The only reason why this happened is because he's against me. How do you know that for sure, though? As a pastor, I'll get this question. Mike and I get this question from time to time. A lot of pastors do. Hey, so how do I know if, like, the Lord is punishing me for something or this situation didn't happen because of some sin that I committed? And let me tell you what my answer is all the time. You don't. Now, there are some situations where it's obvious. Right? But there are some where it's just like, okay, did I not get the job because the Lord's angry at me? Or did something happen? And it's like, and then people are trying to figure it out. And I'm like, hey, good luck. Good luck. I don't know if this is the Lord disciplining you for some sin. I don't think it's a worthwhile pursuit. I just think, man, how do you honor the Lord in spite of the situation? Trying to figure out the motive of why this happened is a futile reality because God rarely ever tells us why. Or if he does, it's not until way later. What we do know is that he is 
making us more like Jesus through these circumstances. So that's the best that I can give you. Once you start being like the mystery machine and Scooby-Doo and them and trying to figure out, and all right, maybe it's this. Oh, I would have got away with it too if it wasn't for those pesky kids and that dog. All that, you start trying to pull it all together and figure it out, and now you know why God did this and why he did that. And once you do that, you start figuring out why God is doing everything to everybody, and we don't know nothing. We don't know any reason why God is doing what he's doing. I have no idea it's because he's punishing me or causing me to grow or both. But once you think the Lord has turned his hand against me, it's going to be hard to love him. It's hard to love people who we think don't like us. How do you think it's going to be with God? She says the Lord's hand is against me. So she's trying to tell them not to participate. The Lord's hand is against me. But she doesn't know that. Now, think about what she just did in this moment. She told these two women who have lived for the past 10 years in left their gods to marry Israelite men. So they have been discipled as Jews to, to, to worship the God of Yahweh. And she just told them, the Lord is against me. My life is too bitter. I don't want you to participate in that. So the one girl, Oprah, goes back and possibly worships demons again. So you can see already just her perspective of God's motive for causing the death of her sons and husband has already turned one person away. So you see, even as Hebrews talks about, it causes trouble and defiles many. You can see this play out even in this situation. Bitterness springs up. You can't contain it and you can't keep it to yourself. You may keep identifying yourself with the term that I'm a bitter person. She would at least acknowledge that the circumstances are, are harsh. I don't want you to experience them. But the statement, the Lord's hand has turned against me. It's almost like saying, I don't think the Lord even loves me. I'm not even confident of his relationship with me. The second scene, when Naomi's coming home, there's a shift. There's a shift. To her daughters, she says, look, my circumstances, my life is too bitter at this point. It's not clear if she's talking about my attitude or just the harshness of what happened. But she knows that her relationship with God is affected, at least according to her. God did this because he has a problem with me. So then we shift now to the next scene and her bitterness, it progresses. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, first it says she stopped talking to her. Now, there are translations that meant she kept stopped trying to persuade her. But there are also ones that say she just ended communication. So she's trying to convince them, listen, don't go with me. And she said, listen, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with you. And then she just was like, all right, man, whatever. <laughs> so they just stopped talking. Now, it doesn't tell us how far the journey was, but I can assure you it wasn't like walking from here to your car. 
This is an older woman and a younger woman traveling alone in a place where Jews are threatened on their way back to where Naomi is from. So she stops talking to her. Now, whether that's she just stops trying to persuade her or whether she stops talking altogether. Now, I think it's she stopped talking altogether for what happens next. Verse 19. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? There's a shift in her understanding bitterness circumstantially to bitterness in an attitudinal way. There's bitterness at her circumstances. I left full but came back empty, which means I left with a husband and two sons. And now I have neither of them, none of them. Those are the circumstances of bitter, harsh, difficult circumstances, angst. But bitterness doesn't just blame God for the circumstances. It also blames God for the consequences of those circumstances. It blames God for our actions afterwards. Because then she says, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me that. Call me Mara. The name change is a reaction to her view of herself based on her view of God. She says, don't call me. Naomi. Why? Because the Lord did this to me. The consequences and the circumstances bitterness easily blames God for. Now you might not know this, but the name Naomi means the kindness of Yahweh. It means the kindness of Yahweh. Some people say it means pleasant, but I think it's clear. Naomi means the kindness of Yahweh. So when she changes her name, this is a significant statement. She changes her name to Mara. Now, Mara means embittered or to be made bitter. In fact, Mara was the location that the Israelites, they found. Remember when they were leaving after this is Exodus 15. And the Israelites were, were leaving. They, they had been saved. They had been taken out of captivity and they were trying to find water. And they get to this place called Mara, but the water's too bitter. And they get angry at Moses. And they start to grumble. It says, it says they grumbled, right? That's the way of complaining. They grumbled against the Lord. So he saved us. He brought us through this huge body of water called the Red Sea. And now we mad like he's not going to provide us water. So he saved us to basically let us drink bitter water. So they're complaining against the Lord. It says they grumbled against the Lord because there was bitter water to drink. Well, Naomi is identifying with that particular scene. And she is basically saying, by personifying the name Mara, she is saying that that's where they, they feel like the Lord wronged them. She's saying the Lord has wronged me and I'm bitter. And there's nothing but bitterness here now. Naomi's heart 
But similarly, like them, they turned against the Lord, grumbling against the Lord. The kindness of Yahweh, the sweet mercies of the Lord, are now bitter to her because of the circumstances. Now, no one is saying that it's not difficult to lose your spouse and your children. No one is saying that any of us would be like, oh, man, we trust the Lord, though, as if it, it requires no effort. Truth always requires effort. But this is a significant statement. You know, in our day and age, some people still do this, but most people don't. Names don't matter as much. But there are times, I remember when we first, when we were first having our, our first, and I think, you know, you, you do the house, our first, you know, you start looking at name books. What does this mean? And what does that mean? And you start doing that type of stuff. And because names mean something, names, typically, biblically speaking, names really matter. Not just the names of God, but the names of people. And names are given for a couple different reasons. Sometimes the circumstances of the person. Sometimes names are given because of how the person came to be. So like in 1 Samuel 120, you know, uh, it says this. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. Right. So Samuel to her means I asked the Lord, I cried out to the Lord and I'm naming him Samuel because of that. So the names are given because of the circumstances of the person, how this person came to be. The Lord gave him to me. Names in the Bible are given of who the person will become. Matthew 1, 22 and 23, quoting from Isaiah 7, says this. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. So in Isaiah 7, that's predicting who this person will be. God among his people. And sometimes the person's names are chosen because of the view the person has of God. So when Naomi says, do not call me Naomi anymore, Call me Mara, which means bitter. First of all, the Jews know what that meant when they heard it. And then if they didn't know, she described in detail. Here's why. Because the Lord took everything from me. The kindness of God. Is gone. Now, think about the scene that just happened. Naomi's been gone for 10 years. She shows up and the women are like, is that girl, is that Naomi coming back? They see her walking like, I mean, I know that walk. They see Naomi and they're excited because, listen, Naomi's name means the kindness of Yahweh. I think it's because that also described the character of Naomi. It wasn't just the name. The name didn't disassociate from her personality. So they saw her coming back and they're thinking of all the things that she's done for them. Wow, was that Naomi coming back? It's clear they probably missed her because the kindness of Yahweh wasn't just her name, but it was the way she carried herself. And she comes back 
and they're excited. Can this be Naomi? Spent 10 years, you put on a little weight, got a little bit of wrinkles, but you look like Naomi does. You know, 10 years it changed your life. The ironic thing is they may have already figured out that something's wrong. Because what older woman would be traveling with a younger woman by herself when she has a husband and two sons? Listen, the Israelites were sharp. They had customs that we don't relate to. Even some things we do, we wouldn't let any girl walk out down the street in the dark by herself. At the church I used to, when I was, coming, when I was uh, dating, when I was, consider, when I was trying to pursue the woman who will become my wife. I remember we were talking after the singles meeting, and then she was going to her car, and it was dark outside, but it was a church parking lot. But I was like, man, let me walk you out to your car. You know? Let me do that. I want to make sure nothing happens. Hey, listen, things happen in church parking lot. When you, when, you, when, when you from where I'm from, you just don't trust nothing. So I was like, all right, let me, let me walk you out to your car. We wouldn't even do that now. So here these two women are coming back by themselves. They may have already thought something must have happened to Emelech and her sons. They may have assumed that. Their excitement was that they knew, I believe, what kind of person she was. Now, the scripture's not saying this. This is me pulling out from this. I think their excitement was, even though that something may look wrong because no husband and sons would let their mom and, and wife walk by themselves on this type of journey, they were excited to see her because of who she was. But when she saw them, she said, that's not who I am now. I am offended. God is against me. So don't call me Naomi because I no longer want to be myself. The person that you remember does not exist. Bitterness towards God will rival our desire to be identified with him. Naomi does not want to be identified as the kindness of Yahweh. She wants to be identified as the bitterness that came from him. She's almost like she's deconstructing God himself. You see, this isn't, and listen, don't call me that. I'm struggling with God, and can you pray for me? This is, I don't even know who I am anymore because of him. She said, the Almighty has made me bitter. Now, I'm not going to get into this, but she's using a bunch of different names. The Lord, the Almighty, they're different names. She's interchanging. She wants to make sure whatever you call God, however you identify him, he's against me. He's made my life very bitter. He's taken everything from me. Because not only did he take her sons who had 10-year marriages, there were no children. Now, if we think children are important to us in this day and age in marriages, they were way more important because they extended the family line. If there were no children, it cut off. None of us think. There are people today that don't want kids. They don't care about no family line. But back then, it was like, listen, if we don't have children, 
particularly sons, the family line cannot continue. And you took two sons, gave me no children. Bitterness toward God will rival our desire to be identified with him. But if there was one main point that I draw from this narrative that I want you to walk away with, this was stuck in me right now, is that bitterness towards God makes us accuse him for what he's done rather than accept that he knows what he's doing. Bitterness towards God makes us accuse him for what he's done rather than accept that he knows what he's doing. We accuse or we accept. But bitterness says, nah. I do not like this. And God does a lot of things we don't like. I get that. There's stuff I don't like. I get it. And I say we have to like everything or understand everything. That's different than I'm now judging the motive of why God did this. But then this makes us accuse him for what he's done rather than accept that he knows what he's doing. It says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. What if there was a real purpose behind that? It limits us to who God is and to what we think God should be. It's like he sent me away full and brought me back empty. Okay, I see what you're saying, but is that it? The Lord has opposed you like the, like the death of your family is opposition? Is that it? Bitterness towards God removes the hope we had in God. If I am struggling with, especially if I'm her, I'm thinking God has opposed me. And let's just be honest. We may not use the actual language, but many of us can feel like that. When something happens outside of the ordinary, some illness or some, something that we didn't want to happen, that we didn't even expect to happen, and then it just happened, and it's like, what? You immediately start thinking, like, what is, why is God doing this, and what's the motive of it? And you're trying to make sense of it, and you won't make sense of it, but you're going to drive yourself mad trying to do so. And you will typically come to a negative conclusion unless the spirit or someone who cares about you, that loves you, that will say, hold on, slow down. I'm not saying this isn't tough. But let's remember the character of God here. Bitterness towards God can lead to us accusing God of sin. Do you know the question, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? It's deeper than just the curiosity of it. It's more an accusation. Like God can't be good if there's evil and suffering. 
So therefore, if God is not good, he's evil, and evil is only done sinfully and by sinful people, therefore making God sinful. Now, most people may not make that deep connection, but as Christians, when we question that, we do. Bitterness towards God can lead us to accuse God of sin, but it's not sin objectively. It's sin against what we have commanded for ourselves. It's not the Mosaic law that God sins against. It's the law of Curtis. It's the law of what I think should or shouldn't happen in my life. It's the law of what you think should or shouldn't happen in your life. Bitterness towards God will accuse him for what he's done rather than accept that he knows what he's doing. And that will lead to the spiral. It will spring up, it will cause trouble, and it will defile many people. I've mentioned this to you. I've watched a lot of deconstruction of my faith stories. And... You know, I could, you know what, I could actually even respect, like, because some of the stories are like, wow, that's the, I could actually even respect someone saying, listen, I'm not a believer anymore, here's why. But these people actually make channels on YouTube trying to help you not believe either. It's not just, oh, okay, well, I'm struggling, so that's just me. You do, it's like, no, let me tell you why this is stupid and why you shouldn't believe this either. And if you're like me, please contact me. I was like, wow. These people got, they're trying to recruit other people who may have genuine, legitimate questions. There is not, listen, the, I don't know how this gets lost in translation, but how, many of the Psalms are questioning God. Where are you, God? Why have you left me, God? Some of those don't end in, but you, O oh Lord, are great. Some of them end with, this is wrong, Selah. They don't end with, look at Psalm 88. Look at them Psalms in the 80s. They don't all end with, but I love you, Lord, and you're merciful, Lord. It's like, man, you are tripping right now. I don't like you right now. Why are you allowing this to happen? And guess what? God wanted that in his word because that is the experience of people who follow a God that they don't see. This is why God, Jesus said to, to Thomas, look, you believe because you see, blessed are those who do not see and believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Lord knows it's difficult. He knows what we don't know. He knows what he has made clear to us and what we're going to have to figure out by faith. These questions of God's character and his actions, he allowed to be in his word so that we could wrestle with them and then see people wrestle with them and come out, but you, oh God. But bitterness towards God changes that. It accuses his actions and his reasons for the action. Verse 21, she says in the second half, why do you call me Naomi? The Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. Now, if you want to say afflicted, you can be like, all right, on one level, okay, yeah. You believe God's in control, and so that it is an affliction to lose your husband and your sons. But opposed? Yeah. 
Bitterness at God redefines the good you think God is doing in your life. So why are you calling me Naomi? Call me, relate to me the way God is relating to me. So don't call me the kindness of Yahweh. Call me the bitterness of him because that's how he's relating to me. You need to know that God is opposed, opposing me. Don't call me anything that, that makes it seem like God has kindness towards me. This isn't a kindness to me. But you know, if you know anything about God, you cannot measure his kindness by a couple circumstances. You got to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and then look back and see, well, wait a minute, what was going on here? Bitterness at God reveals that you think God's job is only to do good things for you as you define good. Like, why isn't Naomi thinking, you know what, though? I had some good years with my husband and I had good years and I got 10 years to see my children be married and have wives and watch them interact with their wives and I had, a good, I had some good years with them. Thank you, Lord, for that. Sure, am I hurting? Yeah, but thank you for that. I didn't have to have that happen. There are other women that didn't have that happen. There are some women who were barren and never had children. But when we're bitter towards God, it reveals that we think that God should only do good things for us as we define good. So when some challenges happen, it's like, Lord, what's the problem? What if the problem is you? What if it's me? You know what's funny? The thing about that is bitterness at God, it reveals that we think God should only do good things as we define good. But we don't even do that for our own children <laughs> or our own or whether you're a teacher, whatever you are. I'm not talking about like just the children that you get, just kids that you babysit even like we don't even do that for them. Can I have this? No, you can't have that. No, no, you can't have that. Why? Uh, you just can't have it. Well, why? Why is a bad word? Don't say why. so much. <laughs> Like, we don't do that with our own children. We don't do that with our own, with people that we care about. We wouldn't let someone who, we would not be sitting at a bar with a friend, and then they get drunk, and they're like, all right, I'm getting ready to go. I'll see you tomorrow. And then they take the keys. You're like, hey, hey, fam, nah, you're not driving. No way. What do you mean I can drive? It's like, man, you can't drive when you're not drunk. Like, like no. Hey, give me the keys, bro. Let me get the keys. Listen, let me call you an Uber, a Lyft, something but you can't drive, eh, and they will get offended at you. They'll be angry at you. You ever heard a story of someone who, was, who didn't let, take the keys from their friend, yeah. and they, they die? Yeah. When I was in high school, we had went to some party, and it was in the summer. It was my summer going into my, senior, my junior year, and there was this guy. His name was Brian McDermott, and his best friend's name was Aaron. 
And then it was high school, so Brian had gotten wasted at this party. But it was all fun and games. Aaron wasn't drunk, and so they left before I did. The next day, I found out that Brian had died. Now, I knew this dude. I was just at the party with him. And what happened was he wanted to get on top of the car and surf. And Aaron didn't want him to, but Aaron was too afraid to tell him no. So he got on top of the car while Aaron drove and he fell off. And he hit his head and died instantly. I felt bad for Aaron because I was his best friend. And I remember I was like, wow, it's going to take him a long time. We don't even do things that we think are not good for the people we care about. Mm -hmm. So why would God do the same thing? The issue is not, this isn't good from God. It's not good to me. Bitterness towards God reveals that we think that it's his job to only give us good things as we define good. It questions the motives and character of God. So it says that he's opposed to me, that his hand is against me, without having any real proof of that. Lastly, bitterness at God, it ends the story of God working in your life to you. It just becomes like this is all, this is it. This is the worst thing that could have happened, and this is it. And the story of God working in my life is gone. That doesn't mean you'll stay there the whole time, but it was clear from where Naomi was in verse chapter one, was like, man, I'm, God is opposing me. She didn't say for a short time, but he will. She just said, he's, he's done with me. I'm offended. Look at what he's done. I don't even want to be identified with him in the same way. And here's why he did it. And we make more decisions based on a why that we have no proof of. When we're bitter at people, we know why they did it. And we have no evidence of that apart from our own assessment. It ends the story of God working in your life, but that wasn't the end of her story. It was only chapter one. Now, many of you know the story. Ruth ended up meeting a man named Boaz who was Elimelech, her Naomi's husband's relative, and he was a kinship redeemer, which meant if a relative died, he, would be, he was responsible to marry that relative to keep the family name going. They called it a kinship redeemer. Well, this guy Boaz was that guy, met Ruth, thought Ruth was an amazing woman, there was another guy who was in line to be the kinship redeemer, but when he found out that Ruth was a Moabite, he was like, oh, no, I can't do it. You got it. <laughs> and so Boaz marries Ruth. And here's how the book of Ruth ends. In chapter 4, verse 13 through 17, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. 
He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you is, is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now let's think about this for a second. If Naomi's son would have lived, Ruth's husband, Ruth would have remained his wife. Without the death of her husband, Naomi's husband, Ruth would not have been free. Without the death of Ruth's husband, she would not have been free to meet and marry Boaz, who became her kinsman redeemer, who gave birth to a son, who is the grandfather of King David, who is the lineage of Jesus Christ. So these deaths, though tragic, set in motion Jesus being born. And Ruth, a Moabite, is in the family of the Savior of the world. Because her husband died, it freed her to meet this man, have a child who gave birth to King David, who later in the line would give birth to Jesus Christ. God knew what he was doing. But when we're bitter towards him, it accuses him for what he's done rather than accept that he knows what he's doing. Now, I'm not going to pretend like the circumstances in our lives are as magnanimous as the Savior of the world being born. What I am suggesting, though, for you and I is that we process the difficult circumstances in our lives differently. And we fight against bitterness towards God by, one, judging the actions and his motives, and then judging what he's done instead of accepting that he knows what he's doing. I want to offer just three questions for you to consider as you think about as you think about this. I'll explain this question briefly and then we'll be done. First question is what I want from God. A promise that God made in the Bible. Is it a promise that he made in the Bible? Let me tell you why this is important. Because the majority of things that people are bitter at God for are not things that he promised to give you in his Bible, in the word. They're desires that we have, they're expectations, right? They're passions that are at war within us. They're things that we want or don't want that God does not promise you can or won't have. Is what I want from God a promise that he made in the Bible that he hasn't delivered on? Most of the things that we struggle with are just like, man, we wish this would stop or this would start. Or it's not like he promised to do this. Second question. Is God treating me differently than how I've seen him treat believers in the Bible? 
This is an important question because we often disassociate our relationship with God from his relationship to all of his people in Scripture. If we look at the Bible, the stories of people suffering are not non-believers. It might say like, oh, he killed the Gergeshites. Cool. They suffered. That's out. The majority of the stories of God's suffering or people suffering are people that love God. People that believe, even God promising people things. Joseph has this vision. Hey, this is a crazy dream I had. All of y'all were bowing down to me. They was like, huh? You the young man. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. <laughs> they sell him to some folks that take him to Egypt. And that dude becomes second in command and saves all of them from the famine. And then tells them what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Like most of the stories of people struggling are godly people. God tells David, you will be the next king. And so David's like, all right. So he's in there playing the harp for Saul. And all of a sudden, out the corner of his eye, he's getting into a groove. He's like, watch this part. I'm getting ready to do something nice. All of a sudden, he sees something coming, a spear's coming. Hey, man, what, what was that? Hey, I, actually, my fingers are hurting, man. I'll be right back. Like, he's got, you're the next king, and God has a spear. This dude throws a spear at you. And then this dude is coming after you. You're hiding in caves, running for your life. But the prophet says, you're the next king of Israel. What am I running for? The first book of the Psalms, many people believe it's David saying, Lord, what, what, what's happening right now? Why? Why, why is this happening? Why am I running for my life? John the Baptist, from the womb, he was filled with the Spirit. And now he's in prison? They tell him, hey, Jesus rose a dude back from the dead. He was like, man, go ask him, is he the Messiah? Or are we waiting for somebody else? Most of the stories in the scripture are people that love God and that God loves that suffer. And the stories are him in many ways and them persevering through it, God bringing them through it. So when you think, man, is God treating me different? It's not like all the people in the Bible got unlimited favor, no suffering, no nothing. You might find a story or two. Enoch walked with God and he just took him up to heaven. He didn't even die. <laughs> it just said Enoch was just gone. It was like, Enoch, you coming... All right, man, will I see you whenever? He was just gone. He just took him up to heaven. But most of the stories of God's people are one of suffering but trusting. That has not changed for his people in this room. The paradigm hasn't shifted in Jesus. It's just become more obvious because Jesus suffered. Last question. First question, is what I want from God a promise that God made in the Bible that he hasn't delivered on? Is God treating me differently than how I've seen him treat believers in the Bible? Don't, don't invite with the people around you because you might think, oh, no, he blessed them, but you don't know what's happening with them. Right. You have to relate to how does God treat people in the Bible. Last question is this, how is God using circumstances that I don't like or understand for my good? And when you're trying to answer that, think of this. 
What fruit of the spirit is he trying to help me grow in? If you if you're all if you're never clear on like how does what is God doing in my life? I can I guarantee you I will die believing this in the box that you one answer is always growth in him. When you're not sure, like, man, what is happening? This circumstance is up and I'm praying and I don't know what's going on. Some people get offended, like, man, I've been praying and all of that. What if this happened because you don't pray and now you are praying? Right. Right. Some of this is that. <laughs> Some of us get offended that we're growing in the spiritual disciplines because we want circumstantial changes. And God says, I'm not changing now. I'm changing you. You don't typically read that much and cry out to me, but now because of this thorn in your flesh, that's all you've been doing. See, we have to understand that God is less concerned about the material circumstances that we want and more the spiritual requirements that are like him that we need. So he'll allow these circumstances to challenge us so that we become more like him. And some of those things are spiritual. We got to pray more. We read more. If everything was sweet, you wouldn't know if you believe in God or not, because it's never tested. You know, when people ask this question, why is there evil if God is good? Because if there was no evil, then there wouldn't be good because it would only be one thing. And we wouldn't even know that there was another option to exist. We wouldn't know that we could choose to do opposite of what we're experiencing. We wouldn't know if we love God because it's always just good. But when evil comes in, when suffering comes in, now we have a choice to think if God is good or not. Not because he provides everything. Think about this. What does Satan say to God? Oh, the reason why Job loves you is because you give him everything. Take some of that away and then let's see what's up. God is not going to give us everything because that's Satan's perspective of humanity. When you provide for them, they don't trust you. They trust you. Once you take it away, they stop. So God proves we trust him when he takes things away and we don't stop believing in him. But when we're bitter, oh, man. God, not only are you wrong, your motive is wrong, your actions are wrong. You don't know what you're doing. And it's like, well, where has that been proven biblically? Can you imagine if Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was answered and God decided, all right, you ain't going to die. Take this cup from me. All right, I'll take it from you. What if the Lord, Father was like, you know what, man, I ain't killing my son for these folks. They're going to sin again anyway. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let, me, let me just go ahead and let that go. Yeah. What hope would we have? Mm-hmm. The most gr- one of the most gruesome events in all human history, Jesus' crucifixion. Then resurrection, it led to our salvation. The only innocent person who ever lived took on the full wrath of God for all people. First Timothy 4, 10 says that he is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. If he, did, if he answered that prayer, it wouldn't happen. Sometimes the Lord says, ah, no, I need this to help shape you. We have to know what we don't know. And we don't know his motives at all. And we don't know if he's angry with us. So this is happening. What we do know is that he says he loves us. What we do know, he says, is that he uses circumstances to help us, to train us, to be more like him. What we do know is he said, I'm with you in the midst of him. So we use that reality to fight against the reality of bitterness towards him. Because once we're bitter at God, it will affect everything else. And bitterness at God is most certainly connected to bitterness at the family. 
because you are not bitter at your family without disobeying the command of God, which means you're bitter at him first. So when we talk about bitterness in a family next Sunday, it is connected to bitterness towards God for allowing this relationship, these circumstances, whatever, to come into our lives. Let's pray. Father, there's much that we don't know, and we do our best to, to speculate, to communicate what we think is true. You don't always lay things out for us cleanly, but we use your word and the narratives, and we kind of put things together like I've done today. Father, I pray that you would, you would make what's true for the people that are listening, that you want them to grasp from this. I pray that you would help people not to get caught up on details that they disagree or agree with, but, but is what resonates with them? What attitude or actions do we have? And Lord, if there are people here who are not struggling with bitterness towards you, then help them to remember what's spoken today so that they can help someone who is struggling or whenever it comes their way. Lord, give us discernment into some of our attitudes and thoughts when you allow things to happen. And may we remember the story of Ruth and Naomi, that that story ended with a baby that, the, that your word says was attributed, was almost like as if Naomi is raising the child, as if it was her own. But it's her grandson, who was the grandfather of King David and the lineage of Jesus. I highly doubt, it's clear from your word, that Naomi made that connection in, in chapter one. So Lord, may we use these narratives to remember that we're not clear on what you're doing and the significance of our own challenges because we don't know what you're doing them for. Help us to remember that as we're tempted to be bitter towards you. In your name we pray, amen.